Some of you might have been surprised that you have a guest speaker on a Sunday like this in the middle of, you know, your routines here. I want you to know this is a very special Sunday, not because I'm here, but do you know this is the first Sunday of summer? How many of you knew that? I mean, honestly, you probably didn't even register that. You don't have a celebratory service or anything like that. Yeah, hurrah, summer is here, first Sunday of summer. Uh, I don't mean to suggest that you should, but, you know, summer has a way of igniting all kinds of actions and reactions in our lives. My childhood memories of summer were such that obviously it was a relief from school. That was great. But it was also then the engagement, all kinds of things that were particularly unique to summer growing up in the state of Iowa as a pastor's kid. And one of those things was a garden. I can promise you uh, my parents very modestly living, trying to manage a small country church pastorate without any other job by way of occupation, and, uh, and with six kids. I was the fifth of six children. And so to do that, it took a great deal of just very frugal and, and, and I think wise management. Learned a lot from those years of my, parent, my parents' lives and impact on me. But a garden was part of that. And so in the summertime, you know, when things would normally have been sort of barren and dusty and nasty during winter months in Iowa, all of a sudden you have the fertile and brilliance of, of green and freshness and, you know, vegetables and all that went with it. And I learned to love for gardening. Summer was a time of vivacious liveliness. It was not something of stagnancy. And yet to the shame, and this is not to rebuke you're here this morning because the truth is you're here, but the truth is often summer becomes an invitation in our lives spiritually to become a little bit careless and casual about our walk with God and our obligations to God. Now, for some of you that think I'm here to spoil your vacation, I'm not. I think it's biblical to have times when we rest and change of pace, and I suppose when you live in Virginia Beach, you don't go to the beach, you go to the mountains. And we live in the mountains, so we come to the beach. That's the way it goes, you know. That's just the, you know, sort of the, the, the path of life. And so I'm not trying to deter your vacation or make you feel guilty about that, and if you want to share after the service where you're going to go on vacation, I'm happy to listen. But the truth is this. In the midst of all that typically in the world around us ignites with greater vitality and freshness, summertime, tragically, spiritually, we often are the opposite. And so I want to just this morning encourage us to just review our thoughts about summer a bit. And in keeping with the focus of the emphasis upon the gospel, give you just a very simple and succinct way to be planning to utilize the fertility of the opportunities that are yours as you approach summer with being a witness for the Lord. How to present the gospel in a way that would be not insulting to your spiritual condition or status or understanding. This isn't new to this church. It's already been emphasized in our music. But you know, it's just a little bit like my gardening this year. I don't know if any of you have already known this. I've gardened, you know, and, and even though our five children are all grown, grown and married and gone, I have as big of a garden now as I ever had when we had kids at home. Now, part of that is because they expect Dad to provide for them even now while they're gone. And I enjoy doing that. But gardening is something I enjoy. And, and I've learned something this year that I had never known about gardening before. If you've known this before... Just learn from a latecomer uh, something. And if you haven't, I can advise it. I've learned this year to put salt on my garden. Now, 
That sounds crazy because it seems so contrary. Salt usually kills things, but it's a special kind of salt. Did you know that if you plant your vegetables with some Epsom salts, it'll invigorate their, their vitality? I've got the best-looking cucumber plants and squash plants and, and broccoli plants and, and corn and beans I've ever had, and I put salt on my garden. I couldn't fathom it. Now, my reason for saying that is this. It's possible that this review of something so familiar as the gospel might be like my new experience in discovering an, an expanded way to, to garden. And I want to hopefully ignite in your hearts, first of all, a renewed love for Jesus Christ if you're saved. I hope you never get over being saved. But then I also hope that in the process of that, you might be able to pick up maybe a little Epsom salt along the way that will help you more vivaciously serve in this season of summer that we have this first Sunday of summer. We read earlier about the message of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 5. I'm not going to turn there. It was corollary to my heart's desire to bring us to a very familiar portion, undoubtedly often emphasized from this pulpit, but God laid on my heart to share again with you today. In seeking to give the gospel to you in a fashion of very simple but salient and substantive truth. And so I ask you to turn, if you would, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This portion so familiar and yet so rich with just the admonition and reminders of the preciousness of the gospel, the privilege to be vivacious and vibrantly used of God in a season of our lives called summer. Ephesians chapter 2, as you find the portion, I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of this familiar portion, and uh, I'll be reading from uh, a version which I know is not normally used here. King James is what I'm reading from, not because I'm not uh, open to others, but because my ministry is so expansive in different ways. I don't boast of that. I'm in lots of settings where it's just my simplest way not to cause any disruption. So if it causes disruption in your heart, get over it. Ephesians chapter 2, in all reverence, would you follow as I read these familiar verses? And you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all had our manner of life in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others." But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath made us alive together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Thank you. You may be seated and now join with me as we review this portion of Scripture. And I'd like you to just sort of latch on to four words that I think can capture the essence of the gospel that can quickly put, as it were, a reminder to you in this season of summer season. 
that's before us. These four words are not intended to overly simplify the gospel. They're just, uh, as they were, sort of ticklers to help us understand the preciousness of the scope of God's message of redemption. And so these four words, word number one is cursed. Would you say it with me? Cursed. One more time. Cursed. Not a very pretty word. Not one that you want to use in the sense of love and admiration to somebody. But if you, if you really love one spiritually, you will bring to attention heart's needs for the gospel by acknowledging to them and sharing with them that they are under a curse. And while they might be nice persons, good neighbors, wonderful companions at the beach or wherever you go, can I just tell you, if they don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, they're cursed. They're cursed and under that curse. And so in the opening of this passage, we find in verses 1 and 2 the thought of this description of this curse given to us. The description's pretty, you know, ugly, if I can say that, but it's very honest and it's very transparently true. It starts with this description, we're dead. We're dead. Now, I want to say this respectfully and reverently, but death isn't something to mock or make light of, and you may have recently experienced the loss of a loved one in death, and so I say with the deepest of care and compassion, I am sorry for that particular circumstance. But you know, spiritual death is what's in view here. That separation from God, which prevents us from ever having access to His presence, And so the first description of this curse as we share with others is, you're dead spiritually. And by the way, there are no degrees of death. Dead is dead is dead. You can find a plant, as we talk about the garden, that has a dead leaf on it, so the plant might be, but that leaf is totally dead. Dead is dead. There are no partial dead people spiritually. Description number one is dead. Description number two is doomed If you move on in verse 2, it says, in which in time past we walked. And and Paul's referring to these Ephesian believers and said, your former life was that you were on this doomed route route or, or, or path. Doomed. It's not because God was mad. It's because God was righteous. And righteousness and sin don't go together. We were doomed. In time past, we walked according to that. Not only were we dead and doomed, but uh, if you'll let me say it this way, it says, verse 2, that we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. That's an expression that we all would understand to be a reference to the devil or the devil and his forces and cohorts. And so if you'll allow me this description of curses, not only are we dead and doomed, but we're demonic. Not in the sense of demon-possessed. I'm not suggesting every lost person is demon-possessed. But the Bible's very clear. There are only two families. Either you're in the family of God or you're in the family of your father, the devil. And so in that sense of the word, we are truly with that particular description of our curse. But not only with that dead and doomed and demonic description, it further goes on and says in some measure the worst of this is we're disobedient. Verse 2, the spirit that now worketh in the sons or children of disobedience. Isn't it amazing that the thing that ultimately introduced sin into the human race was not murder, was not immorality, was not robbery? It was disobedience. Disobedience. The ultimate baseline of all sin is disobedience. Would you agree? You should. Not because I say it, but because that's what it is. And so the curse is described with these terms, if you will. But then not only do we see the description of that curse, we see the degree of that curse, if you would, please, in verse 3. The degree is given to us quite explicitly. It says, among whom also we all had our manner of life, our conversation times past. 
What's the degree of this curse? Well, we all live there. We all live there. No exceptions. No cute little baby that's born that misses that one. <laughs> and as precious as life is and as dear as relationships might be and as, as wonderful of a person as you might be this morning, can I just tell you as a person that's come to this gathering, and if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, the Bible says that for all of your you know, good efforts of trying to be a wonderful person, the Bible describes that as filthy rags. All of our righteousnesses, all of our efforts of goodness are like just discarded rags, worthless. We all, we all lived there. That's the degree of it. And not only did we all live there, but note, secondly, this degree is such that we all lusted after that. We wanted that kind of life. Now, I'm, again, not trying to make everybody have this horrible personal experience this morning. Say, boy, I sure hated coming to church this morning. This guy's really a downer. No, I'm just trying to give you flat out what the Bible says we should understand about the urgency of our message of the gospel to others. We have a cursed surrounding. And while we walk through Walmart and we speak to the cashier and we ask help from a worker and, and we, you know, we'll go to some particular, wherever we go, I promise you, we have wonderful relationships of conversations. And yet at the same time, I dare say the majority of those conversations are with people who are cursed, under the curse of a fallen, sinful life. The description, the degree of that curse clearly given. That would be an awfully sad morning, in my heart anyway, if I prayed at this moment and dismissed the service. But I'm so thankful it doesn't stop there, aren't you? Oh, come on, aren't you? Yeah. And so we have this great interception. It takes place. One of those moments that's, you know, that powerful little conjunction. But God... Yeah, thank you. But God! And can I just tell you, that introduces this wonderful privilege to take that doomed and dead and demonic and, and disobedient heart into the realm of new life in Christ. And so our second word, if our first word is cursed, our second word is cleansed. Cleansed. Would you say that with me? Cleansed. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But God. And so that particular description of cleansing is given for us in verses 4 through 6. It's not exhaustive, but it's pretty amazing. And I'd invite you to just note these six terms that give the description of that cleansing as Paul records it here for us. It starts, first of all, with mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy, infinitely rich, never exhausted, no person will surpass the eligibility of his mercy. Isn't that amazing? If we chose to take the rest of the service and let every person that's trusted Christ as Savior in this gathering stand up and share their testimony, we'd hear a spectrum of mercy that would be unmatched probably in this location at the moment. Unbelievable. And by the way, 
Your testimony might be mercy that God showed you from a life of wretched disobedience in adulthood. I'm here to tell you without any shame, uh, God was merciful to save me as a five-year-old. I don't boast of that, but I give glory to him. And so without shame, I can say that it took as much of God's mercy to save me at age five as it took to save you at age 55 or older. Mercy. Cleansing starts with mercy. It leads on in the passage and says, but God is rich in mercy for his great love. And so the second ingredient is love that's part of this cleansing. The extension of God's heart intentionally to rescue my heart and life. And in a world that's so messed up with love or what they think love is, you know, tragically, our world doesn't really know what love is. Love is an intellectual exercise of what's best in behalf of the object of affection and volitionally you know, implemented at that point. I ch- God chose to love us. Not when we, and not while we're yet sinners, the Bible says, he, he showed his love to us. And so without any, again, fear of not qualifying for his love, I have the privilege of saying to persons, There's cleansing available because of the mercy of God, because of the love of God. Note the third ingredient. It says here, verse uh, 5, that even when we were dead in sins, he's made us alive together. If you will, I've chosen to say the word regeneration is part of that. New life. Regeneration. And so new birth is what is referenced in the Bible. Born again. Regeneration is part of cleansing. I don't have to be this old person. We read a moment ago in Corinthians, if any man be in Christ, is a new creature. All things passed away. All things become new. This isn't a halfway house. This is the full thing. And praise God for his cleansing work of redemption as seen in regeneration. But not only do we see mercy and love and regeneration, but the fourth of these ingredients listed here in this cleansing formula of Paul is Grace. By grace, you're saved. It's like Paul couldn't wait to get to his big verse. He has to introduce it right here. I don't know if that's how he thinks. I wasn't there. You weren't either. So we'll just say I'm right. How's that sound? Yeah. He just couldn't wait to say it. We're going to get to a good one here. For by grace, you're saved through faith. We all know that one. But he just couldn't wait. Grace. I happen to know that's a feature of this ministry that's been so... I think, well presented and wisely exercised. You know, in, in, the, in the realm of grace, there are lots of folk who abuse that. And they try to, you know, exercise some license or some privilege that's mine because of the grace of God. No, when you really understand grace as you've been instructed well, grace is not an invitation for license. It's a conviction for caution and care and understanding of what God's done. His goodness given undeservedly. Grace. That's part of cleansing, the grace of God. But note the next ingredient in this listing of these verses four through six, mercy and love and regeneration and grace. But then we come to verse uh, six that says he's raised us up together. If you will, I, I, I see that as conversion, this idea that we have been truly arrested from our disastrous downward path and been raised together, converted newness of life. Conversion is part of that. This isn't just a matter of a remodel job. This is a conversion. This is the real renewal that God gives. But then finally in this listing of these ingredients of cleansing, 
Review them again with me. We start with mercy. We see love in verse 4. We see regeneration in verse 5. We see grace in verse 5. We see conversion in verse 6. And then we see this, hath made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I see that as referencing very rightfully so adoption. Adoption, not in the sense of some kind of controversial acceptance of a foreigner to our family, but in this rightful status of acceptance that cannot be surpassed by an actual born son to the family. That's adoption, seated as legitimate family members. It's been my privilege and somewhat destiny to travel a lot through the course of my ministry years at Appalachian and... and uh, I'm not afraid to say it's one of those things that I'm often asked, do I enjoy traveling? And I usually say this, I've never answered that question because whether I like to or not, I still have to. And I'm afraid if I say I don't like to, it just only enhances my you know, dread for what I do. Now, quite honestly, I love home. I stay as long as I can to come someplace. I did it last night. You know, uh, your pastor graciously invited me to come early, and I could have had something to eat with him in the evening or whatever. And I said, no, I'm going to, you know, I don't have any appointment last night, just came to stay. So I, you know, I got in town about 9 o'clock last night, not because of anybody doing, doing me wrong. Uh, it's just that I wanted to spend the day as long as I could with my wife. I don't very often get to do that on Saturdays. And uh, anyway, through the course of these years of travel, I've had an experience, particularly in earlier years when our children were all young. We have five children. And, uh, you know, I remember when, we, when I became president uh, years ago, uh, we moved from a little, you know, starter home of, you know, two-bedroom home into a home on campus and gave us more space. And so for the first time in our lives, uh, we at that time had been married uh, 10 years. And we'd never had a dining room set before. I'm not asking for your sympathy. Don't feel sorry for me. We just, you know, we just worked with random chairs and tables and whatever. Some of you have gone there. Some of you are still there. Okay, it's all right. You can, you can get to heaven with that. I just want you to know that. But, you know. but at any rate, we decided we could buy a table and chairs. So it was a big day for my wife and me to go to a furniture store and to sort of look at the spread of options of a table and chairs. And never done it before. So it was a new experience, and the salesperson, uh, you know, trying to inquire about our tastes and all, said, um, uh, asked what, sort of what we're looking for, and we gave some general parameters, then, then asked this question, said, uh, how many captain's chairs do you want? Now, you have to understand, I'm a country boy from Iowa, pretty sheltered, not too smart to start with. And so consequently, I didn't know what a captain's chair was from a, you know, a whatever. And so uh, I didn't answer, but my wife, she's smart. And she said this, and I, I, I took note of it. I've never forgotten it. She said, oh, we only have one captain at our house. We'll only need one. I didn't know what it was, but I really liked it already. <laughs> so. Now I learned later that it was, you know, a chair that had some armrests, a little more elegance to it, and supposed to sit at the end of the table. And we got one, and just one. I want you to know that, not because I'm, you know, insecure, but that's what, you know, what we did. And so uh, it was a wonderful privilege to sit in that captain's chair. But I was gone a lot. And, I, and my wife would say that the children want to take turns sitting in your chair while you're gone for meals. And it didn't, I didn't, you know, get paranoid about that. I didn't say, don't sit in my chair, you know, I, none of that stuff. But, you know, here's the story I want you to understand. I'd come home from those absences 
Some of them longer, some of them shorter, some of them, you know, late, some of them early. But the truth is, any time I came home and there was a schedule for a meal around that table, I never once had to tell somebody to get out of my chair. Not because I'm a mean dad. I'm not, all right. Yeah, I'm a nice guy, right? Please say. No. <laughs> I liked you before today, too. But, uh, but the truth is, it wasn't because my children were afraid to sit in that chair when I was home. It's because, you know what? They knew that was my place at the table. Now, note this description here. God has made us sit together with Him. Hear me. Do you know that God has a chair, captains or whatever, has a chair for you as His child at His gathering place? And it's for you, you're adopted. You get to sit there with him? I'll tell you what, that's an, am, that's an amen moment, right? Oh, come on. Amen. Yeah. I know you're afraid of turning too far south here, but just worry. I'm, I'm leaving town after lunch, and so you're okay. But my point is this. You have the privilege as you go about your summer activities to engage with hearts that you can say, I want to invite you to the most precious seat that you could ever have, and you'll be seated with Jesus as his child. Wow, that's a privilege. Ever been to an event where you got the privilege to sit at the head table because you were someone special? Or been in an event, I was just this last week, one of the presidents of our state uh, retired from his role as president at the University of Charleston, Ed Welsh, just a good friend we've served together. He's been there for 29 years, and public institution, uh, needs the Lord, but just have had lots of chance to just uh, be a part of his life. And, and so I just responded to the RSVP. When I got to the event, I was privileged to be seated at the table right next to where he and his wife were seated. And I said to my wife, I cannot believe there were a gathering of 500 or so important people from the Charleston area, and I'm seated right next to Ed and Janet at their table. Let me tell you something. There's no chair that will surpass your adopted seat in heaven. Wow! If that doesn't charge you up, you might want to check and see if you've got a battery. <laughs> yeah. What a blessing. Cleansed. Cursed. But God cleansed, but it doesn't stop there. Oh, we're saved as we're ever going to be. But note this message of the gospel includes this third word, and that's crowned, crowned. Would you note the crown that's given for us here in verses 7 through 9? I'll just somewhat, you know, briefly touch upon these because of their familiarity. But first off, would you note it's an ageless crown? Ageless crown. Look at verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding grace. We haven't even begun to experience all of God's marvelous grace that he's going to shed abroad upon us. All eternity. It's ageless. Never goes out of style. In a world that's constantly looking for something new, upgrade this and upgrade that, new model that, new model this. And I just tell you, this crown will never, ever be replaced, nor will it be surpassed. It's an ageless crown. 
Not only is it an ageless crown, it's also an abundant crown. Would you note that in verse 7? He's going to show us the exceeding riches of his grace. It's an expression that surpasses any ability to define. Abundant crown. This is a real, you know, showstopper. This will catch attention. And I know that we might sometimes assign that only to the lives that have been rescued from horrendous lives of sin. I'd rather show it on a life that's never been involved with sin that God protected from sin. It's an abundant crown. But note, thirdly, not only is it ageless and abundant, but it's also something that we're authorized to have. Look at verse 7. His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You know, sometimes you get something you say, I don't deserve this. And, you know, that's a humble thought, and sometimes it's even a true thought. And frankly, none of us deserve to be saved. None of us deserve to be saved. But because of the precious, limitless work of Jesus Christ for the lost world of humanity, every person is authorized to have that crown. Wow. And then we come to those verses that are bigger in life, verses 8 and 9. And uh, as I prepared this message, I said, now, how do you give a one-liner for those? If we're talking about a crown that is certainly ageless and it's abundant and it's authorized, I I just chose this word. I was reminded of an occasion that happened with our oldest son, Joshua, when he was at home as a child. And we're driving down the road one day as a family on a trip and, and, you know, sort of in the mode of just, you know, zombie stage of driving, not much going on. The kids are pretty, you know, bored with life. And, And all of a sudden, I hear this eruption from the third seat of the van. Awesome. Now, I'd been driving. I didn't see one thing that was awesome. But my son happened to see a particular vehicle that was really souped up and really, you know, pretty sharp. And he was at that stage in his teen years where all he could say is he saw that vehicle. I said, what's awesome, son? And he points out this vehicle. So then I had to agree as a father. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's awesome. It really wasn't, but that's okay. That was his life at that point. I wasn't, you know, dishonest with him. But can I tell you, hear me carefully. Verses 8 and 9, this crown is awesome. Awesome. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Wow! If that doesn't leave you with the word awesome, you don't know how to say it. That's awesome. That's the crown. And that's what we have to offer this world around us that's searching for something that is awesome. This is awesome. It really is. And so crowned is a part of our witnessing. Let's review. First word was what? Tell me. First word was cursed. Second word was cleansed. Third word is crowned. And it doesn't stop there. And it's not because Paul just happened to add another verse. It's because it's part of the process that we need to be emphasizing in our lives and with others. And that is this. Fourth word. Crafted. Crafted. Not crafty but crafted. Look at verse 10. It's a great testimony of how we as God's children must live all the time and what we have to offer to others that can really have a life worth living. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Crafted. I sometimes think as I read this passage, I did again as I prepared this message, I said, you know, this verse could have very appropriately stopped by saying, for we are His, and put a period there. But it doesn't. 
But that gives us the first thought of our crafted status, and that is this. The master craftsman is Jesus Christ. The master craftsman is Jesus Christ. With this masterpiece, we are His workmanship. You know that word in the text is describing a, something of beauty, a poem, or some expression, sometimes a, an artwork. And I know at this moment you ought to look around a bit and just review how you view some people around you, but they're a masterpiece if they're saved. They really are. And it's right to still sing the kids' chorus. He's still working on me. <laughs> you know. But the master, the master craftsman, his, makes the masterpiece, his workmanship, with this master pattern, if you will, like Christ. That's worth living for. Like Christ. Like Christ. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, if you will. It's this master plan that's there. And so the master craftsman takes the masterpiece and has a master plan. And just quickly, four thoughts about that master plan. It's right there in the text. Look at it, verse 10. It's after this pattern, after the Lord Jesus. It's for this purpose, good works. It's something that's not random, it's prepared according as he hath ordained, with this particular practice, we're going to walk in it. Now, if that doesn't give you an assignment to go home in an afternoon practice, I promise you, that is worth all of it. We're crafted. We're being made into his image. What an amazing privilege to be like him. A moment ago, as the songs were being sung, and the gentleman directing here talked about the fact that we have the privilege to be, or maybe it was during the prayer time, I believe, that we have the privilege to be those who are messengers of reconciliation, ambassadors. You know, isn't it amazing that God risks His reputation on critters like us? Really? He's not afraid to be called our Father. What a great privilege. And so this morning, I'd like to just capture for us this wonderful summer season of vivacious vitality. Put some Epsom salts into your spiritual life and watch the vibrancy spring forth as you share with others. Guess what? The Bible says that without Jesus Christ, you're cursed. And by the way, I'm aware that once we're saved, we're still under the curse by way of the condition of our old nature and our unredeemed bodies. But the truth is, we have the wonderful privilege of being cleansed and that judgmental condemnation curse is lifted as we're cleansed through those elements we saw in order to have this wonderful status of being crowned. But in the meantime, we need to get busy with the crafting job that God has for each of us. Is it any wonder that the book of Hebrews then says that it marveled at so great salvation, so great salvation, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by His blood. Joint heirs adopted with Jesus as we travel this sod. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. I hope you'll have a great summer. I hope you'll take the case of these simple truths and ask God to help you practice them across the fence or in the mountains. And if you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, I pray this morning you will see the beautiful privilege of being His. Would you bow with me in prayer, please?
Oh, Father, you have indeed given us such a clear and refreshing description of the gospel and its message. Oh, Father, I pray that you'll help us not to lightly treat this depth of truth. May its familiarity not cause us to, as it were, disengage or or callous our hearts, but may we with tenderness of response cry out as your children, Oh God, thank you for saving me. I pause in this moment. Would you in your heart right now as a child of God just do that, not verbally, but would you just pause and say, Thank you, Lord, for saving me. What an amazing privilege to be his child. Lord, as we revel in that privilege, may we not be selfish or arrogant or self-assured in our own status, but may we be driven to see the privilege of being your voice, your ambassador, your agent. And in this season of summer, when we think of all the vivaciousness around us in terms of your creation, may we as your new creation be vivaciously giving forth the gospel, seeing folk come to Christ, living out the crafting work of being more conformed to you. Lord, accomplish your work in each heart present. For Jesus' sake, I pray.